that kind of segues into one of the things I really wanted to chat with you about was um, creative ownership and kind of how that's been important for you um, throughout the time of your cartooning career um, going from post underground roots to going and working for you know the man with Swamp Thing to the late 80s self-ownership self-publishing what That's would you like to know? Pretty broad. <laughs> well, you know, I, I I I came into wanting to do comics because of the undergrounds. Um, like all American kids, I, I of my generation, I'm 57 now. I turn 58 next in two months. Um, I grew up with mainstream American comics, where I could jump on a bicycle. Even growing up in a little uh, backwoods town like Duxbury, Vermont, I could bicycle to two local grocery stores that had comic spinner racks or comics on their on their shelves to sell. That's no longer the case. Um, but what got me into wanting to create comics, um, seriously, like that would be what I would try to do professionally and make my living at, were underground comics. So that meant um, I was part of the generation of the late 60s, early 70s that experienced underground comics when they were new and understood uh, that it wasn't just the content and the look and feel of them that set them apart, but understood that the people who created them, um, the writer artists, the writers like Tom Beach and the artists like Greg Irons who collaborated, um, they owned their work. And we could see the, we could see the repercussions of that pretty clearly. Um, James Trinad and Richard Corbin collaborated on some wonderful stories that first appeared in fanzines and underground comics. Um, and then, as I'm getting Natal Herlant, there's Richard Corbin's Den, right? Which had originally appeared in one of his underground comics. Uh, I think it was in Grimwit originally. Um, wow. And... Um, Corbin starts doing new work for Mattel Herlon. And then after Heavy Metal begins, Corbin becomes, you know, the only American artist who was almost always featured in Heavy Metal. Whenever he did, could do no work, new work for them, they, they snapped it up. Um, we could see the benefits of owning your own work. Um, so creator ownership was really important to me from the start. And and I've I've intimated to you, you know, with a couple of anecdotes that we also got a pretty strong dose at the Kubert School by the time we graduated of what the downside of work for hire was. And bear in mind, work for hire becoming the catchphrase of company owned work, uh, even though it dates back to copyright laws that were in effect in the early nineteen hundreds it really became uh, a catchword uh, with the revision of the Copyright Act in 1977, which we were talking about while we were students at the Kubert School because one of our teachers, Dick Giordano, uh, was part of the partnership with Neil Adams that tried to form a union for cartoonists, mm -hmm. for comic book artists, <laughs> and failed. That crashed and burned. Um, and um, uh, so we were aware of... of of what what kind of stakes we were facing, and by I would say by 1979, 1980, Robin, um, since I'd already sold work to Cliff Neal and Larry Shell, those are stories I owned or co-owned, and 
even though the page rates were really low, I was already thinking as a cartoonist about my future. I knew that the stories I had done for Cliff Neal's, Dr. Wortham's, for Larry Schell's Alien Encounters, uh, that's work I could uh, resell. Uh, and in the case of some of that stuff, I would have to resell it in conjunction with the writer I worked with uh, on some of those stories. And in the case of the stories that I wrote and drew myself, that I was free to do whatever I wanted with it. Um, so that meant I was part of a generation of cartoonists going into the field in the early 1980s who probably had a pretty, and I, I don't mean to sound boastful, but we had a pretty clear perception of uh, what the legal camps were and what kind of investment we were making in our own future with each job. The constant temptation, though, is the work for hire work is usually the work that has a page rate that will actually pay your bills. And, and the creator-owned work almost never, almost never. You know, you were doing creator-owned work out of love uh, or uh, because it was something you had to get down on paper um, for your own peace of mind. <laughs> I had to get that thing out of you. Um, and I've also lived long enough now that I've really seen the other end of the coin. You know, I've seen people, I've, I, I had to help my late friend Steve Perry uh, deal with his copyrights, and and I had to call mutual friends at certain points and say, you better get a hold of Steve because if you don't buy him out, he's going to sell his share to anyone who hands him two hundred dollars this week, and you don't want to end up with a co-owner you don't know, and that's not fun stuff to do, Robin, <laughs> yeah. and it is not not fun dealing with those things, and then dealing with the consequences of a family, you know, heirs who discover after the death of a loved one that they owned nothing. Uh, or, on the other hand, that there's an estate of copyrights and trademarks that they have to deal with, and they're not skilled at all in that, and they don't know what to do. Um, and that's tough, because some family members will suddenly have dollar signs in their eyes, like, oh, this is... You know, this is worth a lot, and and a lot of times it's not, because that creator died without investing any value in that work they owned or co-owned. It's just shit sitting in their flat file if they were lucky enough to own a flat file. Um, these are the hard lessons I'm seeing at the end of the road with some of my friends I've outlived. And, and it's got me thinking you know, hard about you know, how do I deal with my own properties? How do I set this up? Um, and none of this stuff's easy. Um, uh, you're giving you're giving both a gift and a poison chalice to your heirs <laughs> with the work that you co-own, um, and uh, and we can talk about all sides of this if if you want. The one thing I try to impart to my students at the Center for Cartoon Studies, and it's a big part of the senior thesis year, is to try to acquaint them with all sides of work for hire, all sides of creator ownership. In these weird muddy areas that they're having, that they're going to have to deal with. Um, most contracts from book publishers now that I've seen are double-edged swords. Page one will say, "You own the copyright. This is how your copyright will read on the indicia." And page two of the contract says, "We are in. We, you know, we uh, publish this work for the life of the copyright, which means 150 years after you're dead." under current copyright law. Um, that's not creator ownership. 
you know, that's lip service to creator ownership. And, um, and I'm seeing, I've seen myself with the contracts I've seen over the last 10 to 15 years, how the book industry, now that it's being bought up by larger and larger corporate conglomerates, and the consolidation of publishing, where where you used to have, you know, four or five publishers, it's now a single publisher who owns the imprints. Uh, they want to own the work, and um, I'm seeing the book publishing industry adopt through the genesis of graphic novels becoming a hot market for the book publishers. They are adopting some of the worst practices of the comic book industry. Um, smaller, I know stories from smaller comic publishers who will do contracts around the uh, media property rights. Oh, it's horrible! You'll, you'll own the publishing rights, the media property rights. They're you got nothing. They're locked down, and yeah. I, these you know, are like of... reputable, you know, small publishers that put out decent work. Um, that should know better, and I know folks that have... Well, we can't even say no better anymore, and you and I can dance around not naming yeah. names or naming names. I'll go either way. I don't have a, <laughs> a, I don't have a dog in this, in this uh, fight, but um, it's not just they, that they should know better. It's that their survival as publishers is based in part on the sales, the higher sales they get from the license titles, yeah. and um, I won't say their hands are tied, but you know that's the turf. If you're going to license an existing media uh, entity, um, even a creator-owned licensed media entity, um, it's work for hire. And if it doesn't call itself work for hire, it is in practice work for hire. Um, And and it's hard. I mean, you know, I struggle with it on the other end of it, with these characters I've inherited from the 1963 comic series. Um, If I have someone do a drawing of N-Man, I've got a little work for hire contract because to protect that trademark that I own, that's what North American copyright law has for dealing with that. And you have a choice. It's either buy out of copyright, you know, assignment of copyright language where you're, you're, I'm buying it from you so I can use it forever or work for hire and, um, work for hire is the preferred legal paradigm because it holds up under North American, um, court of law as we've painfully seen <laughs> with Marvel, Disney, and the Kirby heirs and so on. Um, on the other hand, you know, a lot of publishers are choosing to go that route. And, and, um, and Robin, we're seeing weird extremes now where, you know, I talked earlier about hitting the pavement and taking my portfolio up to comic publishers. I didn't have to sign a freaking prenuptial agreement before I got in the door to, to show John Workman my work. But my students are being confronted, uh, all you know, creators right now that are going out there hitting the pavement often have to sign an agreement before their portfolio is even looked at, and the wording in most of those agreements say, in effect, we own your portfolio before we look at it. <laughs> uh, it's a toxic corporate environment out there, and and honestly, the best way around it as a creator is do your own do your own work, publish it yourself, get it out there. Um, And if you're going to play that game with the big boys, either put together a portfolio that's comprised only of characters you do not own. Here is my 
portfolio that has drawings of the Simpsons and drawings of Star Wars, you know, drawings of the pop media characters I love that I don't own, or build up your creator-owned work to the point where you can honestly say to them when they ask to see your work, I can't sign that agreement because this compromises my existing trademarks and copyrights. So... um, it, what a weird world we're in, and and it's complete. It's completely unlike the environment I was stepping into in the mid '70s, when uh, you know it it just wasn't this as as uh, predominantly a corporate culture that was at, was out there. It's quite fascinating though, because we also have like really extreme dichotomies where we're seeing hyper. Um, controlled uh, publishers uh, conglomerates and we're seeing more and more um, micro publishing yeah more yeah. folks like not quite collectivizing uh, but like a realist lens of how much money it's gonna cost how much we're gonna make uh, yep. what we're doing in ourselves like yep and the micro publishing, you know, it's it's like at that point we have to step out of the paradigm of talking about publishing, much less traditional comics or book publishing, and we're looking at what are the paradigms of microbreweries and beer brewing, or what are the paradigms of craft shows and um, local artist venues. Because um, what I see the new ge- a lot of the new generation of cartoonists doing, Robin, is they're their growing season are the months that they stay home and draw and write and draw and create their work. And their harvest is when they go out on the convention road and they do better. Many of them tell me at the small regional conventions rather than the big shows like Mocha or San Diego. Um, and that then is agrarian comic creation. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting feudal here. Well, I think it's true. You know, it's like local artists, you know, the the folk art community, which is kind of where comics are fitting now with these regional shows, you know, people work all winter on their quilts because the summer months are when there are fairs and carnivals and, and, you know, um, farmers markets where you can set up your table or your booth and sell your quilts. Well, self-published comics are pretty much have have pretty much become that as well. And self-created and self-published work has gone from the mode of trying to imitate mass-produced comics, okay? Um, going back to the mid-70s, you know, real role models for us at Cubert School, we I I was there when my when my classmate Rick Taylor brought Cerebus number one into school. You know, look at this weird, odd-sized comic. The cover is not even the same size as the guts. Um, and when another one of my classmates, Kara Sherman, brought in Fantasy Quarterly number one with the first installment of ElfQuest, um, that generation of self-publishers that I was on the tail end with Tyron, mm-hmm. you know, we were trying to create work that fit and could be sold in comic shops where we were indeed competing with DC and Marvel and and you know, Eclipse and Pacific and so on and so forth. Um, that's not true anymore. The regional shows that cartoonists go to and even the big independent shows like Mocha and Ape, um, 
you know, the comics I see my students and my alumni bring back from those shows are like little art objects. Yeah. Um, and and that means we've gone from comics trying to emulate and look like and compete with mass-produced comics to comics as art, comics as folk art, comic as art object, comic as, you know, choose your metaphor. None of them fit because it, it's not any of those things, but it's a whole different marketplace and we've got to start looking at it in more accurate terms uh, that do not try to make sense of how different that is from the comics industry we grew up with but we need to look at what it's really like and and I think micro publishing is closer to micro brewery <laughs> than anything we can talk about that that ever happened in in publishing per se mm-hmm. and it's exciting it's very exciting. I, I find none of this depressing. I mean, I find all this, and it's the hardest, you know, how do I communicate to the, to the seniors who are freaking out about their future that just as when Rick Veach, Tommy Yates, and I graduated from Kubert School, yes, it sucks that all the things that we grew up with is imploding or the doors are shut to us. But it also means all kinds of doors and windows are, have been left open. There's all these abandoned houses. <laughs> there are all these ecological niches that we can inha- that that you can inhabit or take over or create, and that's an exciting thing. Um, it's not easy. None of this is easy, and it sucks. You got to reinvent the wheel when you thought the wheel was everywhere. But hey, every generation has to play the hand it's dealt it, and. And that's the hand they've been dealt right now. You think about comics a lot. Yeah, I think about all visual arts a lot. I mean, I I love comics. I love movies. I I love um, uh, all those visual storytelling media. I think about them all day, every day, and I probably, one way or another, think about them every nanosecond I'm alive. Um, Now, you retired from comics at a certain point. I retired from the American comic book industry at a certain point. I never retired from comics. Okay. Okay, the American comic book industry was so toxic by 1999 that that's when I announced, nobody gave a shit, that's when I announced my retirement. I announced it on the Comic-Con discussion boards. I was immediately ridiculed, um, but I meant it. It stuck. Um, The only break I've taken from that retirement was to do a three-page SpongeBob comic story, and that was because... uh, Chris Duffy asked me, and Chris Duffy is great to work with. He's he's a great guy, and he was a great editor to work with. But the retirement stuck. I I left uh, the American mainstream comics industry. I kept drawing for myself, um, not for print anymore. And it wasn't until my son Daniel Bissett um, asked me to do a comic strip for his zine. Um, what what are your censorship issues with the podcast? Uh, already... don't, don't say the uh, female derogative that starts with C. Okay. Uh, I don't have to say that. My son did a, a zine called Hot Chicks Take Huge Shits. <laughs> and I think he was 18 at the time. <laughs> and he said, Dad, would you do a comic for me? And that was my first print comic after my retirement. Um, it did not break my retirement because it was not for the mainstream American comics industry by any stretch of the imagination. But that was the faucet that was turned that got me doing, um, you know, work for print again. Um, so go ahead. You you said, Steve, you retired from comics, and all this bladder <laughs> has been me clarifying what I retired from. 
Well, I was wondering about it because um, one of the things you've done recently is we talked earlier about the books about film, uh, collecting the articles you'd written. Um, and that was primarily that time where you kind of stepped away from comics. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, the comics distribution system had collapsed on itself and failed miserably and uh, harmed a lot of people. Uh, and has was, not recovered. Has yeah, not the, recovered. You know, it's still Diamond's the only game in town. And, and I, from what I've been told, even the mon, the mini-comics distributors, other than Tony Shel- Shelton, right? Yeah. They're they're all gone. Yeah. Um, I keep hoping another one will start up. But There's uh, John Porcelino. Yeah, yep, and 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 I love John's work, you know, yeah. King Cat. Uh, and he, cert- I mean, John, John came to CCS, and it was like one of the Beatles showed up, you know, and he seemed kind of overwhelmed with it. But you know, to this generation of cartoonists, he is one of the frickin' Beatles. He's all the Beatles in one guy. Um, but yeah, um, but even there, you know, John can't distribute everybody and anybody no. that comes to his door. So we really never recovered from the mid-90s implosion. Um, but I'm wondering, um, after this time of, you know, comics beating itself up, uh, how important it was for you just creatively to kind of go into just kind of headfirst writing about film, um, the time working in the video store. Um, you know, it was interesting. It was a perfect continuity. Like, you know, I had friends, very close friends, who acted like I was Benedict Arnold. I had betrayed them somehow when I left comics. Um, and it was a straight continuity for me. It, the hardest thing, Robin, and I won't dwell on this, but the hardest thing for me was shifting my my um, day-to-day life from um, when you're making your living creatively, you live in a trance. You really do live in a trance state. <laughs> Because you're always thinking about your thing that you're doing, right? Yeah. And it it, inf- it it infests your dreams, it informs your dreams, your dreams inform and infest the thing you're doing. And the hardest thing was shifting gears into a 40-hour to 60-hour work week where I no longer could afford to live in the trance because now I was working at a video store. I was a co-manager. I worked my way up from desk clerk to co-manager at the video store. And uh, even though I was a shareholder, you know, when my friend Alan Goldstein said, you know, I'd really like you to work at the store, I said, all right, but I start at the ground level. Um, and he was like, no, you're a shareholder. And I was like, nope, I've got to know everybody's job. And and if I'm going to end up as manager, i got to earn that. And, and that's what I did. The continuity was pretty straight. And the weird thing, Robin, was once I became buyer at the store, and we were part of a collective buying group, the New England buying group, it was called at that time. And it was a collective of independent video stores from, you know, northern Maine to southernmost Connecticut. Um, Suddenly, all the lessons I had learned, self-publishing taboo and self-publishing tyrant in the collapsing comic book market were exactly the lessons that needed to be talked about in the video industry because the same shit was happening. The large suppliers... Okay, the whole collapse of the comic book industry in the mid-90s started. Larry Martyr called it Pearl Harbor the day it happened. <laughs> was when Marvel announced they were going to go direct with Heroes World, and that you could only buy their product from Heroes World. 
Okay, and that's in Sean Howe's history. He did a great job covering that I in was Marvel Comics. In the comic store when it happened. I remember. There you go. Now clearly. the same thing, same thing happened in the video industry. Warner did that. Warner announced out of the blue, you can no longer buy our product from Baker and Taylor and Ingram. Okay, the big two book distributors were the big two distributors for the video marketplace. Warner did what Marvel did, and they announced you can no longer buy your product through other distributors you can only buy from us. And that prompted a domino effect that we at the Buyers Group of New England tried to stop. Because as soon as Warner announced that, Universal started to make rumbling noises. They were going to go exclusive with Ingram. And it was amazing, Robin, because it was like I was not only watching a replay on a bigger playing field, dollars-wise, that of what I had just seen happen in the industry I just left comics but I was in a position to actually maybe affect change and um, the people that headed up the New England buying group started asking me to attend the meetings they were having with studio reps and um, there were a couple of those meetings where one of the uh, key figures in the New England buying group a man named Ken McClear who owned video headquarters in Keene, New Hampshire um, Ken was a real prominent player in the New England video industry, and Ken would ask me to come to a couple of the meetings, and he and he we had a we had like a code like Ken would point to me when it was time to talk about Diamond and Capital, <laughs> Diamond <laughs> Distributor and Capital, because we had to explain to the studio reps that the end result of their going direct with one distributor or another was going to shrink the market for them and for us. And that's a hard thing to explain to a high-powered capitalist who is dead set on monopolism. Yeah. They think a monopoly is a good idea. And in fact, as we saw in the comic market, a monopoly is a terrible idea. It's an awful idea. Um, and yet everything in our corporate culture is moving closer and closer to monopolies. They, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's a... I think it's a, an, an actual ecology, a natural ecology that functions outside of us all as human beings that once these abstract entities called corporations that we form become their own life force, they gravitate toward coalescing. They can't help it. And the ultimate, you know, the ultimate goal of that kind of natural life process is becoming a monopoly. It's kind of like the Borg. Well, the Borg is a good metaphor, you know, and it turns us into geeks as soon as we go, yes, the Borg. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> um, and for me, you know, my one of my great passions in life are, are the natural scientists, uh, sciences, uh, zoology, botany, paleontology. And I'm a layman. I'm not a scientist. I, I chose a life path to become a cartoonist and a writer, not, not a, a paleontologist. But I love those things because they make sense of the world. And... Corporations are like amoebas, you know, and once they start feeding, they cannot stop. And when they become multicellular organisms that are some of the largest abstract organisms on planet Earth, it affects all of us. And, and you know, I used the, I jokingly referred to us as krill earlier on, but it's true. You know, we become as creators plankton and krill. Um, I... My lawyer, my you know, my wife's my personal lawyer, works with a law firm that advises its clients against incorporation. 
Because current corporate laws in North America, once you become a corporation, you can be devoured. You can be eaten. <laughs> and not incorporating often is a better way to protect uh, your work as a sole proprietor, as a, as a creator. Uh, because once you incorporate, you know, you are entering that revenue stream and that food chain that makes it easier for your work to end up being acquired by um, Time Warner, <laughs> by Disney, by you name it. And we're all watching how those things play out on the on the, the grand international stage, you know. George Lucas selling off Star Wars to Disney is a major rock'em sock'em event in that food yeah. chain. And we need to recognize it as such. Uh, for for an asshole like me, it makes life much easier. It's like, okay, I already hated Star Wars, I already hate Disney, and I hate Marvel, and now that they're all under one umbrella, that's just one large part one of media eight. I can ignore every day on the Twitter feed because I really do not care about it, and I think it's a hateful thing. And when those forces come together, great. My world just got a lot easier. Um, but on the larger stage, it means also that it that that's a larger corporate monster to be pondering and dealing with. So, I was uh, thinking about just going with that your recent post about the John Carter movie and how. Oh yeah, God, how do you make sense of that? I mean, we're we're at a point where, and I'm speculating in that post, but I think I'm right that. It actually makes sense in a corporate world to deep six a $300 million project because you want to put Pixar in its place. Yeah. And I don't think I'm being crazy looking at that case history and going, this is about corporate Disney slapping down, you know, one of its Pixar creators because they need to keep them in their place. And I looked at that and I went, okay, well, then the obvious lesson is do what Brad Bird did. If you want to make movies, go do it for a competing studio because they don't have a vested interest in blowing $300 million and deep-sixing your project. They will have a vested interest in making sure your project sells. One of the um, things... Oh. No, well, I, I, let me just mention a case yeah. history to bring into pondering something like John Carter. You know, a little pissant, low-budget movie like Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. Are you familiar with that film? I have not seen it. Okay, The Long Goodbye has Elliot Gould playing uh, the same character that Humphrey Bogart played back in the 40s. Okay, mm -hmm. And it's based on a beloved uh, uh, noir novel and film. And uh, having Elliot Gould play Philip Marlowe was considered sacrilege in the early 70s, right? Absolute sacrilege, Robin. Yeah. So the studio that put out The Long Goodbye creates an ad campaign, actually opens the movie, and immediately is facing terrible reviews and horrible box office. Because all, anyone, any, all anything anyone can react to is the sacrilege of the movie. How dare Robert Altman not only... Uh, subvert a classic novel like The Long Goodbye, but how dare they cast Elliot Gould as Philip Marlowe. What an insult. What a crime. The studio looks at their first week of returns, and they go, we got to rethink this, right? And the reason I'm telling you this story is because what they did 
is some genius that was involved in that went, let's hire Jack Davis to do a new ad campaign and let's make the ad campaign a mad magazine parody of our movie. Okay? And that, and that, that, that I'm telling you this because it's a comic story as well, right? Mad magazine was selling almost two million copies per issue yeah. In 1966, it was the top-selling comic publication in all North American comics all through the 60s, and it was so well known. It was so much part of the coin of the realm of Amer all American pop culture that somebody in the studio that was releasing Long Goodbye looked at this disaster they had on their hands and went, "All right, let's change the paradigm. We got to change the national dialogue. Let's." create a new ad campaign that reads like a Mad Magazine parody of our own movie. We're mocking our own movie. We're mocking Philip Marlowe. We're mocking The Long Goodbye. And let's pay Jack Davis, the mad artist, <laughs> to do the ad art. And they turned it around from a horrible, um, scandalous disaster to a very successful independent film that year. Okay, they actually wasn't an independent film. It was released by a major studio. So they were so thinking on their feet in 1973-74 that a studio could turn on that dime, Robin, and turn what was an unmitigated box office disaster, a debacle, into a very successful movie that it was suddenly considered hip to go see and had an ad campaign that made everyone who paid for their ticket know that the movie they were seeing was mocking the Raymond Chandler and the Philip Marlowe archetype. That is genius, right? So freaking Disney, right? The lar one of the largest corporate monsters on planet Earth puts out an ad campaign that is failing before the movie even opens with John Carter. And do they rethink what they're doing? Do they do a long goodbye? No, they let it frickin' fail. And they personally spread the media campaign story that the movie is a disaster, even after it has earned $300 million at the box office. That is insanity. That is insanity. That is a definition of insanity, except in corporate America, where it makes perfect sense. Always, <laughs> when I uh, interviewed Darrow, uh, one of the things he talked about working with the Wachowskis was... Uh, you know, no matter how good the movies you've done are in the past and how financially successful they are, you're only as good as your last movie. Yeah. I mean, I think that's... Uh... And, th and they wanted to slap Stanton down. You know, Andrew Stanton, this was his pet project, they wanted to slap him down. Disney Corporate was willing to fund this project. They didn't hold back anything. I mean, we got to see the movie that that, that filmmaker wanted to make but that there was still a, a, a vested interest in Disney as a corporate being to play a scenario to the public that this was one of the great debacles of the year 2012. That is just, that's suicidal. Unless you look at it and you go, okay, so how does this make sense? Well, it makes sense because in the grand scheme of the new Disney empire, they want to put Pixar in its place. You know, Pixar was getting out of hand. Pixar was making too much money for them. And Pixar can do its Pixar thing, but only in the box we, Disney, will allow it to function in. 
And you look at the you look at the change in Disney management. You look at how John Carter of Mars started as a project under the prior dynasty, and then new management came in. And I've seen it in the book industry again and again and again. When a new uh, when a new marketing department comes into uh, Dell Publishing or or Hyperion or whatever, the first thing they do is piss over everything the prior marketing <laughs> division did. And if it's a change in editorial management, the first thing they do when they come in is piss over over everything that the prior editorial did. And this, at a corporate level, made sense to them because it was the new Disney corporate management publicly pissing all over what the prior Disney management had done and doing it in a way that sent a clear message down through the troops, toe the frickin' line, because we are willing to deep six even your $300 million movie that we paid for. Oh, that's crazy shit, Robin. <laughs> Why would just... anyone want to work in that? I, that I don't understand. Why would you even invest yourself in that anymore? I was just thinking to... of the... Yeah, go ahead. In, in Sean Howe's book, sorry to be going back to it, is one of the, the, the really great parts was he's talking about how uh, creators that would work both sides of the street, Marvel and DC, yep. would get um, treated better than the create the creators that would just stay at Marvel or the editors yep. that would just stay at Marvel. <laughs> but even that was generational. Okay? It was okay for Neil Adams to play both sides of the yeah. street, but Herb Trimpey would be punished yeah. if he stepped outside of the bullpen. Yeah. Um, well, it was yeah, okay that, for Neil Adams to do a lot of things that no one else could do. Well, Neil was the young upstart, and Neil yeah. was, in the 60s, Neil was the young upstart. And Neil, like Jim Steranko, I'm trying to think of the other cartoonists who came in around this time, but let's just go with, with, Neil, and, with Neil Adams and with Jim Steranko. Um, they came in and they were full of piss and vinegar and they also looked at what was happening around them to the artists who had inspired them and they went, I'm not going to set myself up for that. And that also meant that uh, because Neil uh, would do stuff at DC that even if it didn't sell well, you know, it was still... DC management recognized this was a good thing. You know, we need we need a book like Green Arrow, uh, Green Lantern that we can put out there in the culture as, look, we're we're cutting edge. Yeah. <laughs> and even if the sales weren't good, um, or or up where they needed to be, uh, they could still point to it as a badge of honor of some sort. Um, but Neil could jump ship and go pencil X Men. And Stanley and Martin Goodman at Marvel want they covet Neil Adams when he's at DC, and now they got him, and they look at what he's doing, and they go, "God, this guy's a troublemaker," but we got him. It's really important we got him. <laughs> and you know, someone in Neil's position, I I would extrapolate from his interviews and conversations um, that I've that I've read. Um, he was looking at how badly Wally Wood and Jack Kirby were treated and going, I'm not going to set myself up for that. And my generation, we did the same thing, you know. Uh, within the same year, Robin, I, you know, within the same year, I believe, and I'd have to go back and fact check to make sure I'm not just conflating what happened over a number of years. Um, Wally Wood commits suicide. Gene Day dies through overwork and not taking care of himself, apparently. And 
John Baudet dies under very bizarre circumstances involving auto asphyxiation. Now, those are three of my heroes, right? Those are three of my heroes. I I grew up looking at reading Wally Wood comics, and Gene Day, I was buying Gene Day's work as it was appearing in science fiction fanzines and comic zines uh, before I was working in the field. And Von Baudet was one of the geniuses of the underground who not only was doing underground comics, but his comics were appearing in Cavalier, uh, which was one of the adult men's magazines, and Cheech Wizard was in National Lampoon. Okay, and because I'm a science fiction geek, I also had issues of Galaxy that Vaughn had done illustrations, covers, and a comic strip for. Sunpot originally was serialized in Galaxy magazine, and they're all they're all dead within the same, I think, roughly twelve month period. And that means for me, I look at that and I go, Oh my God, I I am not going to let that happen to me. And and I look at those very different case histories and go, Okay. I'm not going to work myself to death for any one comics company because they don't give a rat's ass. That's what happened to Gene Day. I am not going to invest myself so fully in the comics industry that I end up broke and alone like Wally would, and I'm certainly not going to drink. (laughs) Alcohol, bad. (laughs) And I'm not going to follow my personal obsessions out so far in my work the way Von Baudet did that that becomes the public spectacle so to speak yeah um and the best way i can honor those three creators because i do want to honor them i don't look at their individual stories as being horrific tragedies that that devalues everything they did i if anything it makes it important to learn those life lessons that i see in their stories and not do what they did while still honoring their work, because I still want to do work as good as or better than what they did, if I possibly can. And, you know, that's what I, that's part of why I try to impart to people like yourself when we're having a conversation like this, especially one that's going to be broadcast or shared. And this is what I try to impart to my students. And yes, these are sad, tragic stories, but learn the frickin' lessons at the same time. I, you know, um, within the tragedy of Hollywood, there's still volumes and volumes and volumes of beautiful... Beautiful work. Beautiful work. But it also burns my ass when I see entire cottage industries with publishers like Dark Horse and IDW. I mean, we can run the names off, Fanagraphics and so on, where we are seeing the most beautiful reproduction of classic work from creators who desperately could have used the income from that work. And I, I, it, I bristle at it. I don't have any answers for it. I mean, I'm struggling with it right now. You know, I took a really hard public stand on, on my blog earlier uh, last year about the Steve Ditko cottage industry of reprints. And it drives me nuts. Steve Ditko's still alive. Why Steve Ditko's isn't, still producing. He's still producing. Well, I, that was my next thing. It's like... You know, why aren't these books, if they are not going to pay Steve Ditko, and I've talked to some of the people involved with these books, and they love Ditko, and they go, he, he doesn't want to be involved. He won't accept the money. And, and to me, it's like, well, okay, then, then, then make sure the last two pages of your book are freaking advertisements for his new work, okay? Because he can't say no to you about that because you've already decided you're going to do it without him anyway and at least make it so that your reprinting his work leads a buyer 
to his current work that he is doing with Robin Snyder. And they have no answer for that when I say that. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. Um, I'm just thinking about, like, within the recording industry, uh, you have to pay for songwriting credits. You have just to. Just because right. someone doesn't want the money, you have to do something with them. Exactly. And exactly. we don't have that in, in the print industry. We don't have a standard of you have to pay this. Um, and we should. And we yeah. should. I mean, I've been invited, I, I won't name names, but I've been invited by somebody who I like very much and whose books I buy. I've been invited by them to write something for upcoming Ditko stuff, and I have said, no, I won't do it. Yeah. And um, it drives them nuts, and it drives me nuts, because I would love to do it, right? I am going to buy those books when they put them out, even though I feel shitty doing it, because... God damn it, part of this money I'm spending should go to Steve Ditko. He's still alive. Well, my way of balancing those karmic scales has been every time there's a, anytime I buy a book that's Ditko, I write about Steve Ditko and Robin Steiner's publications on my blog. And I'm friends with Robin, and Robin says to me, We just got a pack of orders thanks to your blog post. It's like, okay, that's, at least I've set up some sort of crazy, you know, karmic <laughs> economic scale that allows me to sleep at night when I go out and spend $40 on some new beautiful collection of Ditko work, much of which I already have in crumbling comic books and bags down in my basement. Um, but I, you know, I, I won't feed that industry though. I will not contribute to those books because yeah. it's, it's not just an insult to my friendship with Robin Snyder and it's not just to my mind, a major insult and and very unfair treatment of Steve Ditko. I just don't want to feed those economies anymore if I can help it. And yes, people come to me and say, but Steve, when you do this or that, you're feeding this or that. Of course I am. I mean, you know, we, we live in a capitalist society. There is no way unless I choose to live like a complete Buddhist monk and eat just rice. And even then, I'm eating rice that is fucking somebody over at the rice field. I understand. That's how the world works. <laughs> But I can still make conscious choices and occasionally write about them as conscious choices in hopes that other people will start to, you know, revisit their own ways of working in the world. And a big one for me is this cottage industry of reprints of, you know, of older cartoonist work where, God damn it, they could use that income and their heirs could use that income. And if they don't have heirs, you should still be doing something that is paying back and paying, you know, paying down the line. If 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 he if Steve Ditko won't accept the check, and you send it to him, he's got you make it part. You make it part of your budget, and you mail him the check, and he doesn't cash it. Then at the end of that fiscal year, you send that money to the Hero Initiative. Do something with it, yeah. and make it part of your budget as a publisher, just as you would if you were reprinting my creator-owned work, and you would have to fucking pay me for that book to exist set aside that part of the budget and cut that check and make it part of your entire financial plan that you are going to try to do the right thing. You're yeah. going to at least try to do the right thing. And I don't see any of them doing that. Any yeah. of them. So. Well, I, you know, like those those Kurtzman, those Eisner reprints, money's going to those estates. Yeah. Because Dennis Kitchen's negotiating... Right. And Dennis is earning his living off of that, which yeah. is okay. I don't see that as, 
you know, Dennis is parasitic or Dennis is a tapeworm. If Dennis wasn't doing that, that work would be reprinted and nothing would be going to Harvey's widow. (laughs) And nothing would be going to, you know, you know what I'm saying. Um, So Dennis is fulfilling a a role. God, I wish I had an agent who cared that much about my work. I've never had an agent that that gave a rat's ass about what I was doing. Um, After I'm dead, maybe my work will have that kind of value and then my kids will have to deal with it. and, And I hope they have someone like a Dennis Kitchen who's willing to do that. If my work has that kind of lasting value, it probably won't. But I did work with Alan Moore, and that work has lasting value. So what can I set up? And we're not in a culture, either a creative culture, the comics community we're talking to right now, or the larger uh, capitalist culture that has come to terms with that. I, I, you know, I, I I have not laid eyes on any Marvel movie of any kind, any Marvel anything of any kind, since that judgment two summers ago against the Kirby heirs. I'm done. That's it. If they can't believe enough in their hero mythos that they can take care of the Kirby family, then I have not an ounce of emotional energy I will ever again put into one of their heroic fantasies because it is a lie, and I know it's a lie. And as of this year, I'm at that point with Superman. I am not going to the Zack Snyder Superman movie. I see the previews and I just get angry now because it's like, you know, Warner's attorneys did did what law firms are supposed to do. They played every dirty legal trick in the book to the very end until the current judgment we're looking at where the heirs are screwed. And I don't get it. I just don't, on a human level to me, it's just that is a kind of malignance in our culture. And then there's the the folks the comments from folks which i don't even want to get into because it gets me angry. well no but, um, th- but that's that's the community that frustrates me that's why i don't even want to go to conventions anymore robin because yeah. it that's that's the community fine let the i'm not saying they're bad people that that love comics and want to do that but if you're the kind that wants to you know it's kirby's birthday let's all put up pictures of captain america on facebook I'm sorry. That's just like that doesn't cut it, you know. That just doesn't cut it. If anything, it's just propagating the Marvel license that is yeah. robbing every nanosecond something out of the Kirby's air. Let's let's pocket. put Destroyer Duck up. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> I was thinking we're talking about the royalties thing, and and I was thinking about the the um, you you talked about this on your blog about the different about still getting money from Swamp Thing. Yes, and, yeah. And, you know, as much as DC is a monolith, I've heard generally positive things from folks from the experience with the royalties program where with Marvel, really clearly, no one gets money after their paycheck, their first checks. Well, I, I, I don't... Uh, somebody who's working with Marvel would have to clarify for us. I believe the current paradigm at Marvel, and I'm happy to stand corrected, is I think there's a time window in which you get royalties, and then it's shut off. That's it. Yeah. So, and you don't um, get anything from overseas... Yeah, yeah, and and um, and you know, I, 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 we also before we get into this problem, we also have to say that everyone listening to this has to understand when you and I use the word Marvel, it is not the Marvel comics either one of us grew up with. It's some new thing, you know. And same with DC, you know, the Paul Levitz dynasty is over, and all those beneficial changes that that I still um, enjoy the fruits of. 
uh, were the result of uh, of Paul Levitz's dynasty at D.C. And I'm not lionizing Paul. I have a lot of issues with Paul Levitz. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I see Paul personally, which I've done, you know, twice in the past six months, I'm happy to see him, and I enjoy his company, and I and I enjoy talking with Paul. Um, but I have a lot of differences with Paul, and yeah. and I uh, and I and my family suffered a lot at the hands of that particular dynasty at D.C. On the other hand, um, as a historian and scholar of comics, and as somebody who cares passionately about the comics medium, Paul's dynasty at D.C. did a lot of good. And part of the good they did, which Larry Martyr pointed out to me early on as it was happening back in the 90s, is Paul quietly went out um, for well over a decade and um, made a lot of positive changes in the structure of the business and how business was done at DC that benefited um, surviving Golden Age creators, um, surviving Silver Age creators, and in many ways benefited my generation of creators. Um, and I'm very thankful for that. And if anything, I'm hoping the new DC, the DC Entertainment, the the new dynasty that we're just seeing the beginning of, will be as enlightened an entity. Because I would certainly like to be able to go to the new DC at some point and make arrangements for my heirs. That may not be possible. You know, the money may, the checks may end after I die. I don't know what the current structure is, and I don't think anyone at DC Entertainment would entertain talking to me about that right now I again I'd like to be surprised and corrected on that um, but but Paul did a lot of good and and we've got to chalk it up to Paul and Jeanette and and um, a number of the key people that were in there and creatively we also saw some positive changes during Paul's dynasty um, I think although Stuart Moore disagrees with me on this um, he and I have had that conversation on Facebook, um, I see very great historical significance when DC began employing um, people who had worked with book publishing and magazine publishing firms, bringing them into the fold, because that introduced a whole new era at DC where a creator like Neil Gaiman or Grant Morrison or, or that whole generation had legal representation, had agents and had lawyers. Whereas when I entered the field in the mid-70s, Robin, um, you were quietly blackballed if you had an agent, with the sole exception of those creators who were represented by Mike Friedrich, because Mike Friedrich had written for both DC and Marvel, and the companies had a comfort level with Mike, and that allowed young creators like Pete Craig Russell, um, who were clients of Mike Friedrich's, to benefit, to be probably the first generation of creators who to benefit from having legal representation um, and and that to me that all to also to me is part of what's very frustrating about these current long-standing copyright battles involving Jack Kirby involving Siegel and Schuster I mean no one's being upfront about the fact that there were entire generations of cartoonists who basically if they got legal help that was it the work dried up and that's just how it was. That's just how it was. And for the current courts to stand there and say, that's how it is, 
those are the laws that stick, uh, to me is just, um, you know... Well, wasn't that kind of the case with Kirby at a certain point, too, is once feathers started getting ruffled, they were, he was pretty much done with comics, and Marvel wasn't really... But, but, Jack, but Jack drew almost to the day he couldn't hold a pencil anymore. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> which pretty much corresponded with that period where he stopped doing it. I, You know, I, Jack... From what I know of, of Jack Kirby's um, life and professional life, from all I've read, from all I've heard, um, he was a go-with instead of go-against-the-grain kind of guy. He just wanted to draw comics. And I have friends that are like that. I won't name them. <laughs> but I have friends <laughs> who are like that. They would rather, you know, they see all this legal shit you and I are talking about as being, you know, an obstacle that needs to be just either ignored or, or bowled through or you make the best of it. And Kirby clearly was one of those guys. And, you know, everyone's still looking back in hindsight, trying to figure out, like, what happened? 1966 was the year that Steve Ditko left Marvel. And, you know, historians like Robert Beerbaum, who says he had a phone conversation with Steve Ditko, <laughs> in 1966. He cannot document it because he was a young fan. No one recorded phone conversations. There's no paper trail, so he can't prove what was said. Yeah. But, you know, there is at least suggestive evidence that Ditko tried to convince Kirby to leave Marvel with him, and he wouldn't. Mm -hmm. um, and if anything, Martin Goodman, judging by Sean Howe's book, consistently played that card against Jack because he knew he could count on Jack would stick with them. Yeah. Because Jack was afraid of not working. Yeah. And without naming names, I have seen that happen in my life, in my career. And um, I, I have peers who that is their approach. They would rather be working than not be working. And that's yeah. understandable. It's human nature. And we are in a national depression right now where we are seeing the fruits of that around us every freaking day. There are people on low salaries and working minimum wage who are working insane work weeks because the sword held over their head is they'll be fired, they'll lose their job unless they go along. Yeah. And, uh, and merchants and CEOs and business owners will almost always take advantage of that. And they are. And Jack suffered for that. Um, he did a great body of creative work that we still enjoy to this day and that Marvel earns billions off of annually yeah. um, and the creators were creators are their own worst enemy many many times <laughs> it just it breaks my heart I get so sad <laughs> over the whole all oh, just thinking about Kirby um, it is sad but we've also got to we've also got to be clear-headed enough to look at what's happening right now where work for hire is becoming once again very pervasive in the industry including with publishers that fans like to think are creator ownership publishers and we're watching another generation play these tragedies out individually and we're you know i won't live it long enough to see it all play out you hopefully will um and the best i can do proactively is to try to write about it talk about it teach about it so that the generation of cartoonists going in now if they can't change it at least you know, they can try to make the best of it or they can forge alternative paths we can't even imagine right now where they come out of it the better for it and their families and their heirs come out of it the better for it. I honestly don't understand how anyone 
would willingly work for DC and Marvel right now unless you are so addicted to those characters that it is your life's calling to be a Batman artist. And you will do anything to be a Batman artist. I can understand that. I understand obsession. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But unless you have that, I cannot see any rational reason that any creative human being would work for those companies right now. Thankfully, there are folks making stands. I mean, even one of my friends... Um, I will name names. Brandon Grant's been pretty clear. He's not going to work for Marvel or DC. People ask yeah. him on Twitter, and it's not going to happen. Yeah, He's happy yeah. with what he does. He wants to make the comics he wants to make. He doesn't need the headache of what comes with those big paychecks. And they're not that big a paycheck anymore, either. They're still the biggest. <laughs> They're bigger than just drawing it for yourself in your kitchen and going and scraping money and working two jobs so that you can go to the Minneapolis show or the Virginia show yeah. or the Vermont show to sell your wares. Yes, it is It is a way to feed yourself while you're drawing or and writing or writing and drawing. But um, you're still so. not making your work. You're making their work. Well, um, I'm going to change the topic. Please do. <laughs> Uh, what are the other book series that you mentioned you're going to be working on? So you have a Brian Talbot book coming out. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll go back to Crossroad Press. That's the ebook publisher I'm currently um, working with. The first two books I did for them were two books collecting my old video views columns, which I had done as the Blur book series with Black Coat Press. The reason I recollected that stuff is um, I had to learn the ropes. I had to learn how do you put an ebook together? How does it work? Um, and it made more sense to work with the existing material I had and make that be my first two volleys. And, and that, those were the, the two books you mentioned at the top, the top of the, the show, the horrors book, horrors, cults, crimes, and creepers, and wonders, millennial Marvel movies. And um, so I learned how to do it, and those e-books have been available since the fall. And the next set of e-books that will be coming out uh, this spring are um, – Original, a mix of original and archived reprint uh, writings on comics. And with the first book, uh, the title is Brian Talbot, uh, Dreams and Dystopias. Uh, the book is built around a career-spanning interview with Brian Talbot. Brian's an incredible creator, uh, incredibly sweet man. Um, just, you know, to me, Brian's one of the real um, uh, giants in in uh, in comics the art form mm-hmm. and uh he's also one of the most prolific graphic novelists out there i mean it was very telling that you know brian and i finished the interview we've been doing it piecemeal via email for five years right so we wrap it all up back in the fall and i send a full manuscript to brian to proofread and uh i'm at a friend's house and they gift me Um, a new Brian Talbot graphic novel that Brian had never mentioned that I didn't know existed you know and it's it's the the graphic novel that he and his wife Mary have done that she wrote and Brian illustrated about James Joyce and and Mary's father who was a Joyce scholar it's getting a lot of wonderful attention it just won a a major award over in the UK Um, that's how prolific Brian is (laughs) I thought it was hilarious that we finished this conversation and and we, I tried to cover every nook and cranny, and I'm handed a brand new graphic novel at the end of it. It was hilarious. And a very personal graphic novel. Oh, a wonderful graphic novel. Very personal. You know, I, I love this current phase we're in where 
you know, when I entered the field in the mid-70s, there was only one memoir comic in existence. It was the self-published American Splendor uh, by Harvey Picar. And if and if you really had your eyes open, you know, and, and I always show my students this, yeah, and Sam Glansman was doing USS Stevens in the back pages of our Army at War. <laughs> but that was it. And, and now... Let's, let's, uh, let's, uh, say let's again? Bin- Binky Brown. Well, Binky Brown, but that was a one-shot. I'm talking about continuing work that you could okay. go every month or two, and there was a new issue. And so, But you're right. I mean, Justin, Justin Green's Binky Brown was, was – actually, that was the classic uh, work of, at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but now memoir is an entire genre, and now we have these permuta- permutations of, of memoir where it's, you know, Mary – Talbot is the primary creator, the writer of the work, and her husband, Brian, she's lucky enough to be married to one of the premier graphic novelists in the world, and Brian, you know, sort of does it on the side of his other projects, and it's a brilliant work. It's very, it's profound, it's moving, it's funny, it's wonderful, Um, and it's semi-autobiographical because Brian's one of the characters in it, you know, we get to see him as a long-haired youth falling in love with Mary, it's great. but anyway, that's the first book, um, and it's part of a, a series I'm calling uh, "On Slash In Comics," and it's 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 going to be a series of ebooks that collect um, my writings about comics. I mean, I've I've written about comics for zines and magazines now since the '80s, and and that work has never been collected. Um, and each of them, each each volume will be a group of my essays and reviews built around a long core interview and the first book is uh brian talbot and the second book uh which i'm pulling together now is i had done two interviews with alan moore um back in the 90s and uh, those have never been reprinted so uh i'm gonna reprint them and build the book around it i got nothing to lose alan hasn't spoken to me in a longer period of time than the decade i knew him and we were friends so fuck it i'm gonna go for it um, and the third book uh i'm working on now will probably be built around um an interview i did with joe kubert uh, two years before joe passed away okay um and uh i'm gonna keep going with it i mean i've i've written tons of stuff about comics and if i incorporate my blog postings there's even more there so um and ebooks are a great vehicle. Uh, I don't have a publisher. I don't have the benefits of, you know, Craig Yo or Fanographics, somebody that will package a handsome, beautiful art book. So I've decided, you know, to gather my, my comics writings as ebooks, primarily text, very little artwork in them because ebooks can't really, um, you're adding to the, the file sizes uh, every time you add artwork. So I'm, I'm just doing them primarily as text. Um, because that's what I can do. That's what's in reach. Crossroads is happy to work with me, and I can put it together here at home without uh, without dealing with the gatekeepers. Shouts the truth peacefully. Electricity. 
The Alan Moore work, um, given the kind of loss of friendship, is that a tougher work to work on? Not really. You know, it would have been five, six years ago. Um, as I said, you know, I've I've now been exiled by Alan longer than than we than we knew each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've you know I couldn't change it. I, I had seen. When I first met Alan, you know, my first trip to England that John Tolliban and I took back in 84, 85, um, Alan had had some kind of falling out with Alan Davis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was over Captain Britain. And uh, and I saw, you know, you meet somebody where you're seeing the consequences of, of I'll use the word exile, you know, Alan gets if there's some sort of disagreement with somebody, he just exiles them. They they cease to exist in his world. And I saw that, you know, happening. I saw the consequences of it right in front of me the first time I ever went over and met him. And, and um, so when it happened to me 10 years after that, I, I knew, well, okay, I've seen this play out. I've seen it happen a couple of times to other people. There's not much I can do to change it. I did try to reach out, but there there was no response and that was that and i it was painful um but i lived with it uh and uh now it's far enough down the road i mean everybody's doing books about alan and and at a certain point when i was pulling together what i was going to do with these book series i always knew i wanted to start with brian because i think brian is just you know not enough people in america even know of brian's work and um he was you know, Brian was a key creator in the um, the British underground comics movement. You know, he he was he was doing seminal work back then, and that's what Luther Arkwright came out of. So I knew I wanted to start with Brian. Mm-hmm. And then when I was thinking about what what the second book would be, I did the first interview with Alan Moore and Melinda Gabby about Lost Girls. Um, it was serialized in a in a comic magazine that nobody remembers anymore. It only lasted three issues, and I did a four-part serialized interview with Alan and Melinda about Lost Girls, and um, so I pulled that manuscript out, and and I had one other interview I did with uh, my friend Stanley Weotter, and I interviewed Alan for the book Comic Book Rebels, and uh, I decided, well, what the hell? I mean, I own the interviews. Uh, they were done at a time when Alan was happy to talk to me, so I'm not misrepresenting him or anything he would have said. Um, 
And I've got one long essay that I did called Mr. Moore and Me that I did for uh, a book called uh, Alan Moore, Portrait of an Extraordinary Gentleman that was that was done a number of years ago. Um, and I'm going to reprint that essay. And... Um, and uh, and it hasn't been difficult. It's actually been kind of nice to dig the stuff up and revisit it and and uh, make sure that all the spelling is correct and everything. Um, Alan was a really good friend, and we we did some work we were both really happy with and proud of, and that work has has had lasting value. It's the the Swamp Thing work never dropped out of print. You know, from the time DC began the reprints with the first trade paperback, it's never really dropped out of print anywhere in the world. Um, we still, I occasionally get packages from DC, and and John Tolliver and I, um, and Rick Beach and John and I still uh, get surprise boxes from DC of Spanish editions and Italian editions. Um, so why not? I mean, if other people can write books about Alan, I certainly have a right. <laughs> I'm going to do it. Uh, if he objects. So be it. But um, uh, the nature of when you do an interview, as you know, Robin, this interview yep. now is your property to do with as you will. Um, and unless you use it to, you know, change my words or slander or malign me, I don't have a leg to stand on if I don't want it out there. Uh, it's out there. Uh, that's that's what we agreed to when we do an interview, and that's what Alan agreed to when he did the interviews with me. So there it is. Um, what. When you guys started together, or when you when he came on to Swamp Thing, yep. and you and John were already working on it, did you really know what to expect? Oh God! Um, like I mean, things. John, John and I, John and I were reading Warrior. Okay, you uh, you have to understand that because of, I'll I'll just go back to Metal Harlot. I mean, with every key eruption of some new publishing thing with comics anywhere around the world, if I could get my hands on it, I would, and. Um, Warrior started, I think, in 81. We can double-check that. Uh, but I think Warrior Magazine started in 81. And I bought the first issue at Heroes World, you know, Ivan Snyder's Heroes World in New Jersey on one of my visits down to Dover, New Jersey. Um, and um, I bought every issue of Warrior, and John Tolliban was picking them up, and we were reading uh, Marvel Man and V for Vendetta, and we were blown away. We were like, holy shit, this is amazing stuff. And it was amazing also because um, it had been a long time uh, since I had seen a writer work with that clear a voice, and yet the voice changed depending on who the artist was he was working with. Like, Marvel Man has a whole different voice and vision than V for Vendetta has. Mm -hmm. And it was very dramatic and very stark and very apparent that, you know, this this writer is is doing something I haven't seen in comics much at all. Um, Robert Kaniger's, I Robert Kaniger's one of my favorite comic writers, but Robert Kaniger's voice, <laughs> you know, whether it's Andrew and Esposito or Joe Kubert drawing that war story, I have no doubt that is a Robert Kaniger war story. Um, Alan wasn't like that. Depending on who was drawing, uh, it was obvious he was he was um, customizing and streamlining the script to fit the strength of the artist. So I can't say we knew what was coming, Robin, when you frame it that way, but Len Wein was genuinely surprised when he he called me and then he called John to tell us there was a new writer on the book, and he thought we were going to be, you know, uh, 
concerned or 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 wary and both John and I went you're kidding really great you know we couldn't wait to work with Alan mm-hmm. um and it was complete coincidence but uh John wrote a long letter to Alan I wrote two long letters to Alan and Alan had already mailed long introductory letters to John and I this is before email before the internet when all we had was snail mail or the telephone um those letters crossed in the mail and we all got each other's letters and we were all on the same page we all wanted to do the same thing with the book um so no I didn't know where we were going but we were all with one major caveat we were all on the same page about where we wanted to go with Swamp Thing what's the caveat <laughs> I knew I knew you were going to ask that <laughs> you can't do that <laughs> I carefully set it up um Alan was going to do the DC superheroes, you know? He had discussed that with Len. Mm-hmm. And Len knew me well enough, John certainly knew me well enough, that uh, I hate superheroes. I really, I don't, I never got into superheroes. I was not into superheroes when I was a kid. And I saw Swamp Thing as a horror comic. I wanted to change horror comics. My whole modus operandi as a creator going into the field, my goal was to affect positive change on horror comics that that's what i wanted to do and uh alan and len basically agreed that alan was going to bring the superheroes in but um the the story i was fed is that it was at len's insistence that the editor had (laughs) demanded that they be in there but alan really wanted to do it and i found that out about a year into it it was wasn't a big surprise believe me but um but that was the the one thing alan did not mention in the letters that was kind of let's not tell steve just yet (laughs) (laughs) um and i tell you i mean how much did i hate him robin when i got the script for issue 21 i was blown away and um i was i was overwhelmed at that point i mean i cannot describe to you what kind of a crazy scheduling nightmare swamp thing was from the beginning and I'm terrible with deadlines. I mean, I'm really, I'm really bad with deadlines, especially as an artist. Um, I called Rick Veach and said, "Rick, you got to come down and give me a hand." And um, and Rick jumped right in into his car and drove down. We lived about a half hour or forty minutes away from one another. Um, Rick jumped right in, and um, when I got, I don't remember which issue it was. I think it was twenty it was the end of the Jason Woodrow there was a whole sequence that took place up on the space station of the Justice League and I penciled the opening couple of pages and um, and I remember John and I having long conversations about it the only character I was looking forward to drawing was Hawkman right? Uh, in part because Joe had drawn him and, and, and I had read it as a kid and I loved it. And in part because, you know, he's kind of a monster. I mean, it's a guy with this freaking weird hawk thing on his head, you know? So that was fun to draw. But the rest of the you know, Firestorm? <laughs> I still remember John's voice. You know, I'll, I'll, I, I won't be trying to imitate him when I send it to you, but, you know, John was like, what is he, a freaking human Bic lighter? Where's his brain, you know? It's like just fire coming out of the top of his head. Um, by the end of that issue, I begged Rick to come down and pencil 
the pages where Green Lantern and a couple of the other Justice League characters come down to deal with Woodrow because I hated superheroes so much that I couldn't even bring myself to, you know. So that was the one caveat, Robin. I, I did not like doing the superheroes. And the one issue I really resented, which I understand for a lot of Swamp Thing readers was a really key, exciting issue, was we had to do that frickin' crossover with Crisis on Infinite Earth. Oh, with the um, uh, the magicians. Oh, uh, God. And I just was like, ah, oh, shit. You know, because we were on a on. real roll with Swamp Thing. We suddenly had to break what we were doing. Alan was absolutely genius about, you know, folding it into where the continuity we'd already set into motion. But I was just like, damn, you know, we're a horror comic. Why are we having to, you know, do this stuff? Um but it's okay. I mean, that's that's the trade-off when you're working with a mainstream company. You got to do what they got what they want you to do. It's a plantation. I was picking cotton. I didn't get to pick which cotton I was going to pick. I just had to pick the cotton. So <laughs> it's funny because uh, that issue, the the twenty-four, I think it was, was when I was really young. I still remember it being like one of my early exposures to like comics looking a little different. Well, and I've had a lot of people say that to me. I mean, I could get into... Alan was great about making the... You know, I'll, I'll, I think I've said this before at some point or other. I mean, if if there were really a Superman, if Superman really existed, if he came flew into a room we were in, we would all instantly be uncomfortable. <laughs> and the bend of my nature that loves horror stories, I can go with that you know that to yeah. me is a horror story right there it's like how would you interact with a super being um that's why those issues of miracle man work so well that, exactly but at the same through. time alan wanted to play in the dc universe and you know there are aspects of these comic book universes that are just silly when we did down amongst the dead men which was the the annual um swamp thing going to hell to rescue abby um, when we did Down Amongst the Dead Men, and part of it was exciting. I mean, John and I were, you know, it was cool that we were going to draw Dead Man and the Spectre and the Phantom Stranger. But we also started butting our head up against, you know, Len Wein uh, at that point because um, we wanted to reinterpret those characters. We were still going to draw them as who they were. The costumes were going to stay the same and so on. Um, but let's face it, you know... A lot of DC supernatural characters have no eyeballs, okay? So it's like little orphan Annie land. And a lot of DC supernatural characters wear bright clothes, you know? Red and yellow on the demon. I love the demon. The demon is one of my favorite comic characters. But being the color of a stop sign and a yield sign is not inherently scary. <laughs> um, a lot of the DC supernatural characters have little pointed shoes, little pointed booties. You know, when you're actually drawing that stuff, the silly component is right in your face. It is really fucking silly, Robin. <laughs> um, and having arguments over Len Wein, like I turned in the first couple pages of um, of uh, Down Amongst the Dead Man that had the Phantom Stranger in it. And I, at that time, was casting my comic characters. Uh, Vincent Fago, one of the, the great Golden Age cartoonists, um, had looked at my art portfolio when I was a student at the Kubert School. I got to go up and, vin and visit Vincent and his family in Bethel, Vermont, and 
Vincent looked at my folio really early in my career and gave me some great advice, which was I had a hard time maintaining um, continuity of likeness on certain characters. He, he said, you know, your animals and your monsters, I can see them very clearly on the page, but when you're drawing human beings, this person and this person are the same character, but they don't look like the same person. And he gave me the advice of casting my comics. He said... I could tell from dinner you love movies. We had talked over dinner, and he says, you love movies. You absolutely love movies. So cast your your characters in your comic stories, and, and if, if you can't cast friends of yours or people you know, cast movie actors. And surround yourself with photographs and work from those photos until you learn the discipline of drawing a character as consistent panel to panel. And that was great advice to give to me. Um, so when we were working on Swamp Thing, I was still doing that. Um, I drew Abby as Sigourney Weaver. Um, John, who was much more adept and still is much more adept with drawing women than I will ever be, um, would soften that from the pencils to the inks. And Abby, after about four issues, I could pencil our Abby. You know, Abby became our Abby. We had a way of drawing her, and it was our character. Um, but I liked casting characters. Uh, Jason Woodrow is Peter Cushing. Okay. Yeah. Um, and if you look back at uh, those early Woodrow issues, especially when he's wearing the human guise, it's Baron Frankenstein from the Hammer films. It's Peter Cushing because that's who in my head. If I were making the movie, Peter Cushing was the actor I would have had play Woodrow. Um, so Phantom Stranger, I drew as Lee Van Cleef. You know, I wanted him to look like he'd stepped out of a spaghetti western with the cape and the hat and everything. Um, that motif coming into the DC universe, Len saw the pencils and went ballistic. You know, this is not the Phantom Stranger. <laughs> so that you know that that was the other aspect I hated about drawing the superheroes is that the companies had a real set template for their characters and it didn't give us the room to play. Nobody objected at DC when John and I drew the demon the way we drew the demon. Right, we we played up the the feline aspects of a demon. He's sort of a cat demon monster when we draw him, and and the demon fans loved it. You know, it was still the Jack Kirby demon, but it was our approach. We didn't have that license when it was Green Lantern or Hawkman or or even characters like Phantom Stranger or Dead Man. We had to toe the company line, and it's interesting. Both companies did that. Um, I did for Rick Marshall. I did a color painting of the Hulk that actually was published by Marvel when Hulk was in a color newsstand magazine format, and Rick loved my Hulk, and he commissioned me to do a a second painting that I actually still have all the the roughs for. And right when I was at the stage of uh, putting it to um, uh, canvas board, I got a call from Ralph Macchio, Rick's assistant, pulling the plug on it because Jim Shooter had seen the issue of the Hulk with my painting in it and said, I don't want this Bissette character <laughs> doing the Hulk. <laughs> now, my Hulk was, you know, I did it like Jekyll and Hyde, you know, and I played up the monstrous aspect of the Hulk. And you look at it now and it looks tame because, you know, Todd McFarlane took the Hulk in a whole direction that that um, changed how Marvel approached that character. Um, the same with the DC characters now. You know, what we wanted to do with Dead Man wasn't nearly as radical as what Kelly Jones did with Dead Man. Yeah. Um, but we were working at DC and earlier at Marvel when they were still very conservative publishers going through transitions. And the creators who 
worked with those characters after us benefited from much greater creative latitude working with the company's characters. By the time we were done with Swamp Thing, you know, DC was happy to have an artist like Kelly Jones go to town with Dead Man and, and make it even wilder. Uh, but when we were doing it in Swamp Thing, we really had to toe the line. I uh, I really loved that run by Kelly Jones. And uh, was it Mike Barron? Yeah, that was a terrific yeah. book. Um, I, I have a lot of admiration for for both Mike and uh, and Kelly as creators. Um, Mike is, you know, a, a friend of mine on Facebook. We do not agree on a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> we are light years apart politically. Uh, but I have great affection and respect for Mike, um, and and I love the comics he did at that time, and that was a great series that Mike and Kelly did with Dead Man. That, that was a terrific piece of work. Um, I'm going to kind of bring us together to conclusion. I kind of yep. want to think about how starting teaching at uh, CCS, I guess, it's been there, what, five years now, six years? Uh, I'm I'm in I'm starting my eighth year right now. Um, wow. I I started in the summer of 2005. I was one of the first faculty there, and mm-hmm. hopefully they'll keep me on until I either can't move and talk anymore, or until they got to bring the drool cup in, or until I drop dead in class. One of those things. I I hope <laughs> I stay with it. I hope I stay with it as long as I can. I I I can't think of a better thing I could be doing with my life, frankly. Well, part of that is. Um, how working with all these young folks, um, how that's changed your own perspective on comics. Oh, God. Well, it's made me fall back in love with, with drawing comics. I mean, I'm doing a lot of work for print these days. And that's because of my my son, first and foremost. I, I mentioned earlier about him asking me to to do the strip for his, his first zine. And, and it's because of my students. Um, and... Uh, you know, it's like living in the beehive, and I have a role again. And and CCS is very much a beehive. Um, it also is, you know, life gives us gifts. The universe hands us a gift sometimes. And I, I will, to my dying day, feel an enormous, unrepayable debt to Joe Kubert and Muriel Kubert and... All our instructors, you know, Kelly Harris and Rick Estrada and Leah Elias and Dick Giordano and Erwin um, Hayes and everybody that, that, that taught us at Kubert School. I, I just feel this huge debt to them, Robin, because, um, you know, I would have owned a gro- I would have taken over a family grocery store and been pumping gas <laughs> the rest of my life, probably. Um, instead, they opened the door for me. Uh, yeah. to, to do what I'm do, what I've done and what I'm doing, and when uh, James Sturm first contacted me about this dream he had of of opening a school, um, and you could have knocked me over with a feather when it was going to be in my home state in Vermont. You know, I I want to stay in Vermont. I, I I like it here. My roots are here. My kids are here. I, I love Vermont. And uh, that 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 someone was opening a comics college in Vermont. And um, and I went up to visit James, and he walked me around White River Junction and pointed out the empty storefronts that he was thinking about. Maybe, you know, maybe we'd be here, maybe we'd be here. It's and and when it became a, a reality, and and you know, James sat me down. Uh, we were at a comics conference at Bennington College together, and that's where James showed me Seth's um, 
original art for the first brochure for the school. I, you know, it, it was just like you don't say no to a gift like that. <laughs> yeah, the gift from James and from Michelle Ollie, the two founders of the school, the gift from the universe that I was lucky enough in my path of life to be where I was. The age I was at, you know, my kids were out of the house. My, my, you know, my kids were, my, my daughter had already moved out and my, my son was 18, 19. Um, I couldn't have taught at the school if it had been earlier in my life, but it was the right time. And it was also the right time for me. I wasn't abandoning my kids if I went teaching. <laughs> um, there is an aspect of teaching where you, you bond with your students and, and it is a, a form of surrogate parenting in some ways and um and i was the right age to do that you know my my kids were leaving the nest it was okay <laughs> to do it um and i was done with comics you know i was done with the american comics industry i could not have taught and then penciling swamp thing if the opportunity had presented itself earlier i just wouldn't have had the the time the energy and the the ability to do it um everything was in line and i was all done at the at the video store, you know, I, I was done with the video industry March of 2005, um, and the door opened at CCS the summer of 2005, and, and uh, it was a great gift. And and I, I'm rambling a little bit, but the point is, it was also, I could now give back to the next generation of creators what Joe and Muriel and Rick and Lee and everybody at the Kubert School had given to me, had given to me and to Rick Veach and Tom Yates and Kara Sherman and Rick Taylor and Ron Zalmi and all my classmates. Um, it was an opportunity to give back to that. And, and, and that was the greatest gift. You know, that's, that's the gift that I couldn't have even imagined possible. Um, that, that, that I'd be lucky enough in my lifetime to have that. And, and, uh, and it's been, it's been terrific. Um, I don't have a teaching certificate. I'm not a professional teacher. I've lectured. I've I've presented workshops. I've worked with kids from kindergarten level uh, to college level uh, with individual opportunities. But I I really, you know, <laughs> my dad taught me to swim by throwing me into a river, <laughs> and this was me jumping into a river and I was just James was confident I could do it and I was confident I could do it and um God help my first year students because <laughs> I didn't know what the fuck I was doing <laughs> but you know it came together and and um you know as with the the position I was in I I was part of the first ever class at the Cubert school and Joe was very upfront with us from from before day one, look, this is a big experiment. Uh, you know, I've never done this, and and we don't know what we're doing, but we're gonna make a go of it. And I was, I was in that same position. And and again, it was scary in one way, but that was part of the gift as well. I was on the other end of the classroom from where I had been in 1976, and oh my God, I mean, what an opportunity, and and what a direct line and yeah. i could never ever in my lifetime thank joe and muriel enough or pay them back there's no way to repay that kind of debt but i can pass it on and i can do my best for the next generation and you know i'm starting my eighth year with it i'm lucky i'm lucky to have a job at all in america right now <laughs> i count my blessings there um i'm lucky to have a job that's creative in nature and um and i'm lucky to be part of this 
this um, experiment that James and Michelle have put into motion. And, um, you know, I hope it doesn't end. Um, I hope it outlives us all and continues. But if it ended tomorrow, I could honestly say we made the most of it. And I look at the work and I look at the artists and the creators that have come out of the school and what they're doing and how some of them are already passing it on. I mean, I, I can't tell you what how much it means to me that, you know, Chuck Forsman and Melissa Mendes and, and Max Derigu all, you know, that it all came together into the Oily Comics um, uh, website and and business plan. Mm-hmm. Um, I And I look at the work of all the students that I was fortunate enough to work with, and especially the ones who are making some headway out there. And uh, it, it's great. It's I just great. got a Lucy Nisley book in the mail yesterday. Hey. It's, there you uh, go. It, it's funny too because from my uh, from my viewpoint, there's no other kind of comic school institution where I've interviewed as many graduates and faculty. I mean, I'm sure if you go through, I've interviewed a fair amount of SVA grads. SCAD. Uh, SVA. I mean. School huh? of Visual Arts. Well, no, I know where SVA is, but also yeah. SCAD. You know, so, I mean, James Sturm, CCS grew out of the SCAD program um, in Atlanta, and our first fellow, Robin Chapman, was one of James's students. And I've had students like Sean Knickerbocker, uh, who graduated last year and is is you know working with the Danger Comics uh, partners he has to 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 also create new inroads into um, comics. Uh, Sean came out of SCAD. Um, I'm excited by Saw down in Florida, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what uh, what Tom and Leela are doing down there. Um, and Kubert School. I mean, I, I'm really, oh God, what a lineage coming out of the Kubert School. Anyway. <laughs> what I was saying is the CCS itself, um, there's there's something there, maybe. Yeah, there is something there. Um, there's something there. There's some there, and and I think part of it too is that um, uh, what James and Michelle recognized is that this is a generation of of creators who've grown up with um, a whole different paradigm and a whole different potential. Um, available to them because of the examples that existed when they grew up. You know, when I when I entered Johnson State College, I had to set up an independent study in my second year because the art program wasn't addressing any of what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And there was no word to use yet. The, you know, um, we started this conversation before we started recording where you were talking about George Metzger. Um, <clears throat> other than George in his... Um, uh, graphic novel, calling it a graphic novel. <laughs> the term graphic novel didn't even exist for most people until Will Eisner, you know, coined it for a contract with God. Yeah. Uh, so when I f- created my independent study for Johnson State College, uh, there wasn't a word. There was no term I could use. Um, I start my class at CCS in comics history by handing out to them photocopies of my uh, syllabus for my independent studies from 1975. 
and it's called the Comic Epic, right? And the instructor I worked with, the head of the art department at Johnson, this uh, this uh, German Jew named uh, Peter Heller, very Teutonic in his manner, very stern. I was always afraid of Peter, and he played that card for all it was worth. And he said, well, you have to bring in and show me what you're talking about, right? So what could I bring in as an aspiring comics creator in 1975? I had a stack a stack, Robin, of dog-eared enemy aces, and I had a stack of Fourth World comics by Jack Kirby. <laughs> and Peter looks at this stack that I put on his desk, and he snorts with complete contempt. <laughs> well, my kids, who are now in their late 20s, and the students at CCS, they've grown up with Mouse and Dave McKean's Cages and now, you know, Fun Home by Alison Bechdel. I mean, oh, my God, it's like all these masterpieces. From Hell by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell. Um, Eddie Campbell's Alec collected book, you know, which yeah. if it fell off the table would kill my cat if my cat was under it. <laughs> I mean, we, James and Michelle, when you say that CCS, that there's something there, part of it is they recognize there was already something out there, and it just needed an institution that was willing to just focus on comics. You know, one of the frustrations a lot of uh, people talk to me about that are in other colleges and they're trying to create graphic novels and comics, as soon as you're in a program where you've got to study English literature and chemistry and history, all of that is distracting from the bizarre, uncanny focus of energy and skill you need to do a comic. And... James and Michelle structured the curriculum at CCS so that it's a James used the metaphor from the start of a wheel and at the hub of the wheel are comics and everything else radiates out from that and and that determines the whole curriculum that de determines every individual syllabus for every individual class if it doesn't if it doesn't hold up what it needs to hold up on the wheel as a spoke into the hub it's dead baggage and we have to pull it out and you know we've got students coming in that are graduates of Dartmouth and and SCAD and they're coming here for their uh, their uh, MFA we do we, we we are not an accredited school in terms of being able to give a degree unless you have the prior degree and we can grant an MFA so we've got students coming in that wanted to do comics, but they could not do it in those other higher institutions of learning. And this was the perfect program for them. Um, and it is an uncanny skill set. You know, comics is like ballet. It looks simple, but try it. <laughs> you know, go ahead, try <laughs> to do it. Because it is this bizarre inter interdisciplinary skill set that you have to have. You've got to be a writer. You've got to be an artist. You've got to be able to design a page. The design of that page has to work as a graphic design, but it also has to work as a sequential narrative with all the storytelling components that go into that. And I could go on and on and on, as we do at CCS every week. Um, but it is a remarkably strange and refined set of skills that have to be brought to bear and also a remarkably refined set of obsessions that have to be brought to bear you gotta really wanna do this to be in that classroom you know um, it's gotta be a calling it's not that you're looking to make this as a way of making money because that may or may not 
pan out at all. Um, but you really got to want to do this. And it is unlike anything else on planet Earth. Um, and if you are one of the ones who really wants to do it, it is better than anything else on planet <laughs> Earth. Um, and what you can do with it is unlike any other media. I love, I freaking love movies, but I can do more in comics. Mm-hmm. And if I, because there was a time in my life when I wanted to make movies. Like when I was in junior high and high school, I really, I tried. And early on, because I also did a lot of theater in junior high, high school, and college, I figured out early on one of the big problems is, holy shit, if I want to tell my story, I have to convince a lot of people, a lot of people, that my idea is so good that they will pour 100% of themselves into it for the duration needed to do it. All I need with a comic is a piece of paper and a pencil. (laughs) And that's way easier for me to mobilize than trying to convince a lot of people and a lot of money and a lot of time that belongs to others that my idea is good enough to do. And with comics, it's time and it's work. That's pretty much it. I think and just an individual can do a lot in the comics meeting. I think you've given us the perfect closure. I think so. We've blathered for <laughs> days at this point, Robin. I th- Thanks for. I think Steve, you've you've got the record for my longest interview. Well, Congrats. you might have to break it up and serialize it, but there you go. Uh, just a reminder, folks. Uh, I've been talking to Steve Bissett. Um There's a long list of stuff that Steve's been working on, including uh, e-books such as Horrors, Cult, Crime and Creepers, um, Wonders, Millennial Marvel Movies, uh, the upcoming Brian Talbot Dreams and Dystopias, as well as a work uh, collecting interviews and articles on Alan Moore. I'm also working on a book we didn't mention. Uh, I'm doing a book right now for Watson Guptal on how to draw monsters. And right. uh, if if all goes well, that'll be out sometime in 2014. As well.